Good morning. Our sermon text reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. It is located in your program on page 7. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Again, my name is Jerry Riando, and I am really grateful that John reminded you all that this is my first time preaching here this morning because I think it sets the expectations at an appropriate level, so makes things a little easier for me. Yes, good morning. Uh, last week, Demiron preached the passage immediately before this in Ephesians 1, and in that passage, he shared a glorious truth with us that we, if we are followers of Jesus, have not only been forgiven for our sins, but we have also been adopted as children of God. Not only has God pardoned us and made us acceptable in his sight, which is an incredible enough truth, but he has actually brought us into his family. And in the passage you just heard read, Paul sort of continues that train of thought. He says, if you have been brought into God's family, if you are his children, then you now have the rights and the privileges that come along with being a child in a family. And one of those rights and privileges is that you are now an heir. You have an inheritance from God, which sounds like a pretty good person to have an inheritance from. You know, the, the more the wealthier a person is, the more you enjoy having and being an heir of that person. And God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and is Lord of all, it's pretty incredible that we would have an inheritance from him. But interestingly, in this passage, Paul does not actually describe to us what that inheritance is, simply glories in the fact that we have one. Fortunately, in some other places in scripture, Paul expounds a little bit. For instance, in Romans chapter eight, verse 17, you can turn there if you'd like, but I'll also just read for us. Romans eight seventeen, Paul says this. He says, and if children, and here, this isn't really a conditional if, this is saying, and since you are God's children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be, and here's the key, glorified with him. Glorified with him. As heirs of God, we will be glorified with Christ. Our inheritance is, at least part of our inheritance, is glory. This is sort of a so it's it's a, a powerful word, glory, but it's sort of a word that's out in the air a little bit. It's hard to kind of put your finger on what that means. One theological dictionary describes it this way. Glory is beauty, power, or honor. A quality of God that emphasizes his greatness and authority as well as moral beauty and perfection. And our inheritance, at least part of it, is sharing that glory with God. He shares his beauty, his power, his honor, his moral perfection with us. What this means 
is that when God lets you into heaven after your life is done, he's not gonna let you in as sort of a, a beggar who uh, needs to sit in the corner and sort of be at, you know, who doesn't really deserve to be there. He's letting you in as someone who deserves to be there. Someone, uh, in order to get into heaven, what, what do you need? You need the, the beauty, power, honor of God. You need to be morally perfect. And because God shares his glory with you, you were let into the kingdom of God as one who deserves to be there in spite of your record and your past. You get credit for everything Jesus did and everything he is, and he is glorious. So you share in that. You will be treated for all eternity as if you were Jesus, as if you were as beautiful, as powerful, as honorable, and as morally perfect as he were. We share that glory. A couple of weeks ago, I went to my first Lions game. I've only been in Detroit for about four months. My wife and I and our kids just moved here. But I'm a really big football fan, and I love cheering for teams that break my heart, so I decided to go to a Lions game. But we went week two, and if you've been following the season, that was the good week to go. We were playing the Commanders, and uh, it, was, it was a raucous game. The stadium was almost entirely sold out. Uh, the first half of that football game, the Lions basically played a perfect game. They were up 22 to zero, and it was, it was people were, were just going, losing their mind. They were euphoric. The second half, things got a little dicey. It looked like we might, we might give it away. They came within one score, but we held on and won the game. And at the, the end of the game, those fans, man, they were glorying in that victory. They were high-fiving and hugging. Some people were crying. I think it was just remarkable, this idea that our team is not below 500, right? And it was really exciting. The funny thing was, as we were all celebrating, to kind of think about the fact that we actually hadn't done anything as fans. All we'd done is sort of pay a lot of money for tickets and sit in traffic for a while, right? We didn't accomplish anything. The, the team on the field, now, now, they might deserve a little bit of glory for winning the game. Now, it was against the commanders, so it would just be like a little bit of glory, but they deserve something. We didn't really deserve anything but we were able to share in that glory with them kind of vicariously. And that's a, a tiny picture, I think, of what is being described here as our inheritance is being able to share in Christ's glory. We didn't do anything except contribute our sin to our salvation. Christ accomplished everything, but we share in his glory. But it's even better than being able to sit in the stands. It would actually be more like if the Lions game was more like our faith, if we could actually like go down on the field after the game and enjoy the Gatorade bath, you know, or be lifted up in, in, in the air and celebrated as if we had won the game, and then going home and getting in the mail a paycheck that a Lions football player would normally get, that's more like what it's like for us to share in Christ's glory. We get the paycheck, as it were, that Christ deserved. We get the glory in some sense. We're gonna be treated like that for all eternity, that Christ deserved. And here's the incredible thing. In verse 11, Paul says that you have already obtained this inheritance. This glory, in some sense, is already yours and will continue for eternity and will be the reason you are eventually let into heavens or the new heavens and the new earth. But a couple points we want to look at this morning. The first point we're going to look at briefly is uh, something we need to know about this inheritance. This inheritance has an early withdrawal restriction. It has an early withdrawal restriction. Let's look at verse 11 compared to verse 14. And this is 
a little bit confusing. In verse 11, Paul says that you have already obtained this inheritance. But then look at verse 14. Paul says that you have yet to fully receive this inheritance. So which is it? Have we obtained it or are we waiting to come into possession of it? Well, as John talked to us about a couple weeks ago, this is one of those infuriating instances in Paul's writing where there's a question of is it A or is it B? And Paul says, yes, it's both, right? This is the idea of the already but not yet, which describes so much of the Christian life. There is a sense in which, yes, you have already received your inheritance from God. And there is another sense in which you have not yet fully received it. You've received it already, you have not yet fully received it, and we're stuck living in the middle in this life between these two realities of having received it and having not yet fully received it. I was in college ministry for about 13 years before coming here to Redeemer, and I had one student who uh, was named Hunter who epitomized to me the sort of poor college lifestyle. This guy ate ramen noodles for basically every meal. He never drank coffee unless I was buying. And coffee's cheap, you could buy like a tub of Maxwell House for like $3, but that was outside of his, his budget. He was an introvert and would have preferred to live completely alone, but lived with way too many guys because he just in order to make ends meet. And he, you know, he tolerated it, but it wasn't his favorite thing. And at the end of his college career, I learned something about Hunter that surprised me. It turns out Hunter was actually kind of wealthy, especially for a 21-year-old. He was actually wealthier than I was. Now, I was in college ministry, so I didn't say a lot, but you know, I was able to afford coffee, and he, he wasn't able. And so it was surprising to find this out. You see, his grandfather, sadly, had passed away a few years ago, and had left him with a bit of an inheritance. But it had a withdrawal restriction on it. He wasn't allowed to touch the money until he turned 25. And so there was a very real sense in which Hunter had already obtained this inheritance. He could go online and check the balance. It was in his name. He owned it. But it didn't actually affect his, his budget and his ability to eat better food than ramen until he turned 25. So there was a sense in which he obtained it and he had yet to come into possession of it. And the same is true I believe a similar thing is true with our inheritance from Christ. We have already obtained it. It's, it's ours and we will have it for eternity, but we cannot yet fully enjoy it. And as a result, there is something we need to guard against. There is a, a term in theology, and don't worry, I'll explain it, called an over-realized eschatology. An over-realized eschatology. So eschatology is the study of the eschaton, which does not help very much. So the eschaton is the, the time in uh, history, I guess you could say, after Christ returns in which he, he renews all things, he creates the new heavens and the new earth, and, and, and creation is back to the way it was supposed to be. That's the eschaton, it's the last times, it's the end, it's eternity. And eschatology is the study of the last times, right? And an over-realized eschatology is when we take things that belong here in the eschaton and we bring them into our lives today, expecting them to to play out here as well. So there's things that God has promised us for the eschaton over here. And sometimes we're tempted to take those promises and think that they apply today and we need to guard against that. Glorification is one of the blessings we are promised in this eschaton and, and, and we need to make sure we're not fully expecting that today. So if Hunter, my student, had gone out and purchased a brand new F-150, he would have been suffering in a sense from an overrealized eschatology, right? He would have said, oh, I have this money, I can purchase the truck. And he would have realized his mistake when the first bill came and the check didn't go. 
So what would it look like for us to suffer from this over-realized eschatology? Well, a couple days ago, I was hanging out on the University of Michigan at Dearborn's campus, and I was talking to some students, and a student who I knew came up to me, and she just looked distraught. And we asked her, you know, what's going on? What's wrong? And she just had a really embarrassing experience. She had um, this oral presentation that she needed to give. It was a public speaking class, which I think for some students has got to be the most nerve-wracking class that you can imagine. So she had a public speaking class. She had a presentation prepared. She came up to the podium, was able to say one word, and then burst into tears. And she was just, this was just devastating to her. She was embarrassed. She was, now, she was still nervous because now she had to do the presentation in a future class, so she was still anxious about it, and she was miserable. And one of the students with me, I was really proud of the student, this was cool, asked if he could pray for her. And she said no. This was surprising, why, why can't we pray for you? And she said, God didn't help me. God didn't help me. Can you imagine sort of the train of thought that she was thinking here? God didn't help me. And I am, I feel miserable right now. And if God is like how Christians have described him to me, he could have helped me. He's powerful enough to. So either God isn't really the way that you tell me he is, or he doesn't really love me. Do you see your train of thought there? Because I'm miserable right now. God could have helped me and he chose not to. So I don't want you to pray to that God for me. Have you experienced this? Where something in your life, maybe even more serious than, than a, a botched presentation occurs, and you go through that exact same train of thought. Either God isn't who I thought he was, or this God doesn't love me. Maybe you're experiencing that right now. And, and, and while your pain is very real and very legitimate, and God even encourages us to express this kind of frustration to him in the book of Psalms. A few weeks ago, DeMyron preached to us in Psalm 88, in which I think that young lady would very much have uh, appreciated the psalmist in Psalm 88 calling out to God. Though your pain is legitimate, your logic may be a bit flawed. Because the Bible tells us that God loves us very, very deeply. If you're a follower of Jesus, God, Christ, God chose you, this passage says. It says he predestined you, that Jesus Christ died for you, and that he won great blessings for you. But the blessings are not all for today. They're not fully realized in this life today. And if we measure God's love for us or his ability to care for us solely on our experience today, we're missing out, and our logic is not following the logic of Scripture. So that's point one. There's some early withdrawal restrictions on our inheritance, but point two is equally important. Our inheritance does come with a first installment. So if we need to guard against one error over here, one ditch that we could fall into, which is an over-realized eschatology, where we expect things that belong in the eschaton, promises that God made for us for the future to happen today, there's another error we can fall into over here, and this is not what it's actually called, but for the sake of parallelism, I'm gonna call it an under-realized eschatology. And that would be saying uh, that there's actually no blessings in this life if you're a follower of Jesus, right? And there are some churches and traditions that might be more likely to fall into this error. I think this might be an error that our tradition, our church, the Reformed tradition, the Presbyterian church might fall into. I've sat under preaching and teaching and that sort of makes the Christian life sound like, hey, life's just gonna be entirely miserable. There's nothing you can do about it. So just kind of grit your teeth 
and get through it and there'll be good stuff at the end of the day, right? And that also is not an accurate presentation of what the Christian life is like. So we need to guard against an over-realized eschatology and an under-realized eschatology. You do have promises from God for this life. This passage tells us that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, God himself, if you are a follower of Jesus, is dwelling in you right now. And that is not without effect in your life. In verses 13 and 14, there's two words that Paul uses to describe what the Holy Spirit is in your life. One is that he is a seal, and the other is that he is a guarantee. So what do these words mean? Well, a seal, Paul was probably thinking about. So if you were a, there was not two-step authentication in the ancient world. So if you were a, a wealthy or an important person and you wanted to make sure that, for instance, a letter that you wrote that you weren't gonna be present to deliver was authenticated as yours, you'd have a, a special emblem, like a family crest kind of. And when you, you, you wrote the letter, you put it in an envelope, you'd seal it with hot wax. And while the wax was, was drying, you'd press a signet ring or maybe like a medallion that you wore around your neck onto the wax. And that way when someone received it, they see, okay, so the wax has not been broken and there is a seal on it. And that seal belongs to that important person over there. So I know this is truly from them. The Holy Spirit is God's seal pressed onto you, indelibly marking you as God's possession, authenticating you, securing your safe arrival into eternity. He's also our guarantee we see in verse 14. This word guarantee, it does mean exactly what it says, uh, that we, he guarantees that we are followers of Jesus and that we will arrive safely in eternity. But the word that's translated here as guarantee in the English from Greek was not originally a Greek word. It actually came from Phoenician traders who brought that language into the Greek language. And it was a word that they used as sort of a, a partial payment for a trade transaction that was being done. So you'd, you'd, pay, you'd, you'd pay a partial payment to ensure that you'd pay the, the entire payment later, like a down payment. And so the Holy Spirit is a partial payment or a down payment from God on our inheritance today in some sense. So what are some of these benefits that the per- third person Holy Spirit, the Trinity, brings us and applies to us in this life, not just in the life to come? Well, there's a lot of them. For, for one thing, you have already been justified. You've already been justified. This means that you have been declared righteous in God's eyes. God loves you as if you had already fully received the glory that is coming in your inheritance, as if you were already as beautiful, as powerful, as morally perfect as you are going to be. God already loves you as if you were that today. He loves you as if you were as perfect as Jesus. You're also being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You're being made righteous. That thing that God has already declared you to be righteous and that he is going to make you fully in eternity, he is actually working out in your life today, making you more and more like Jesus, not just by declaration, but practically in how we live our lives. God is not leaving you as you are. This so think about my, my student Hunter, who was theoretically very wealthy, but it couldn't affect him today. He, you know, he was functionally quite poor, right? He didn't have a lot of money. But you know, I never noticed him stressed about finances. He never seemed to think that, uh, he never seemed to think like, 
oh man, like this is the end of the world, because he knew there was no permanency to his poverty. The money was coming, he just had to get through it. You see, even though he didn't have full access to that money today, it was able to have an actual real effect on his experience of life that day, because he knew it was coming. He did not suffer from an underrealized eschatology. What would it look like for us to make the mistake of thinking that none of the blessings of our inheritance are for us today? Well, I think when we experience feelings of intense shame or guilt or unworthiness, unforgivableness, un, as it, feelings that we are not loved or lovable, feelings that we are not worthy or significant, as if we need to dedicate our lives to proving that we are enough, that we deserve the very air we breathe, I think we're suffering from an underrealized eschatology because we are forgetting the truth that we have already been justified. And the most important judge in the universe, the one who, whose opinion is the only one that ultimately matters, has already looked at you if you're a follower of Jesus and said, you are enough. You are worthy, you are significant, you are loved, lovable, acceptable, not because of anything you've accomplished, but because you are in Christ and Christ is those things. Those other things that we could uh, feel or think that, that, that would maybe be a symptom of an underrealized eschatology, feelings of, of hopelessness, feelings that we're never going to be able to get over that sin or that, that difficulty in our life it's just not gonna happen, we're just stuck and it's gonna be like that forever. And you know, if we are convinced of that, then we may also be suffering from an underrealized eschatology because God says, the Holy Spirit is in you and one of the things he is doing is sanctifying you. He is not finished with you. I know he's not finished with you because you're not yet dead. And if you're not dead, the Holy Spirit is working in you. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's making you more like him, he's not done. And at the end of your life, he will finish that work fully. One more point about this word guarantee. This is pretty cool. That Phoenician word that went to the Greek that we've translated guarantee, that word is still used in modern Greek today. And you know what it's used for? It's the word they use for engagement rings. Isn't that a cool picture? What a great picture of the already but the not yet. A picture of, you know, when you have an engagement ring, you have a tangible picture of the promise of marriage, right? but you have not yet fully come into the relationship of marriage. You're in this already, but you're not, not yet. When my wife and I were dating about a decade ago, uh, full confession, I, I, took, I have some commitment fears in my life. It took me a little while to work through these while we were dating, and as a result, we ended up dating for about 20 months long distance, and it was kind of a long time. And uh, I think near the end of our, and I know, near the end of our engagement, Catherine was beginning to wonder, is this guy ever going to ask me to marry him? And we got in this, this, this big fight over the phone, because we were long distance one evening. And I don't remember what sort of the surface level of that argument was, but I can tell you what was really under the surface was this tension of, uh, it, it, is Jerry really serious about this relationship or not? Here's the funny thing about this, this argument. While we were arguing, because it was over the phone, I was actually holding Catherine's engagement ring in my hand. I had just picked it up from the jeweler. Uh, it was my grandmother's diamond that I'd put on the setting. 
and she had no idea that I was holding it. So I wanted to surprise her. How much different would that conversation have been if she was the one holding that ring? If she could look down and see a tangible picture of my commitment to her. Now, I'm just a sinful person, and so my promise, my love, my commitment, that can still change. But God's promise, God's love, God's commitment, that, that can't change. So we can be even more certain that an engagement ring can make, make us in, a, in an engagement that God truly loves us. What difference can it make when we go through suffering in this life that we can remember that there is a mark on us, there's a guarantee on us that God truly, truly loves us. So that's point two. Point one was there are some early withdrawal restrictions on this inheritance. Point two, uh, there is a down payment on that inheritance. And point three, our inheritance brings God glory. This is also in verses 11 and 14. Paul says that this inheritance is given to us to the praise of God's glory. And he says it twice. Interestingly, he says it first in reference to, he says us, and there he's referring to uh, Jewish people. And then he says, also referring to you, and there the you is referring to uh, Gentile Christians. Gentile just being the word Jewish people use the time to mean not us. And so the gospel came first, both through the Old Testament and through Jesus's and the apostles' actual preaching to the Jewish people and was now spreading to the rest of the world. And this is gonna be really important in chapter two when I'm not sure who's preaching, but someone's gonna preach to us about the horizontal effects of the gospel, how it, it brings not only us together with God, but it breaks down barriers between us. And Paul says, now this inheritance is given to Jews and Gentiles, irrespective of your, your ethnic identity, irrespective of your religious background, if you are a follower of Jesus, this inheritance is available to you. And it's to the praise of God's glory. You see, God giving us this inheritance is a celebration of his glory. He is celebrating his glory when he gives us an inheritance. He is not giving it to us begrudgingly. He delights to do it. And I think we can relate to this just a small amount. There's a rule of etiquette I heard a while back that if you're at someone's house and there's a host and they offer you a drink, you're supposed to say, yeah, sure. And if you just want water, just ask for water because we delight in giving good things to people who we're serving. And God infinitely more delights in giving good things to his children. And here, so there was a, another story from my college ministry time. There was a conference I was at. College ministry just loves conferences. And uh, at this conference, there was, a, there was like a worship session. There was some modern Christian music being played. And there was one particular song playing. Um, and the chorus set was, oh, how he loves us, oh, how he loves us, sort of. It was one of the songs where the whole song was basically the chorus. Not super creative, but the message was great. Oh, how he loves us. And during the song, a couple of my students I saw looked upset and, and left the, the room. And I followed them out just to make sure they were okay and asked them what was up. And if you don't know this about college students, college students love being righteously upset about things, right? And, and this is actually funny. I think Presbyterians also love being righteously upset about things. And Presbyterian college students, you get the picture, right? And so one of the, though they were upset about it, is they said, I don't like this song because it's all about how much we love God. Oh no, I'm sorry, other way around. How much God loves us and you know, how great he thinks we are. We should be singing about how much we love God and how great he is. You know, good point, I get that. 
But what I think they may have missed, and I wish I'd been able to explain them in that moment, is celebrating how much God loves us is celebrating God's glory. It is a celebration of how great he is because he glories in his love for us. One last thing, it's important to understand it's not just the father who delights in, sh- in giving us this inheritance, right? So in, in, in a family, especially in a, in a family in the first century, it would be the father who, who owned most of the possessions and would bestow the inheritance. So the father delights in giving you, his children, an inheritance. It's also the son, it's also Jesus who delights in sharing his inheritance with you. You see, Demiron shared with us last week that we are adopted children of God. But John 1 tells us Jesus is the only begotten son of God. So what we are sharing in, this inheritance we're sharing in by adoption is Jesus is by birthright. Now, not birthright in the sense that there was ever a time in which the second person of the Trinity did not exist, right? He is equal in power and glory with the Father, but the scriptures describe him as begotten in some sense. He's begotten from the Father. So what we are receiving, he has by birthright, and Jesus delights in sharing this inheritance with us. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of a older brother who did not delight and sharing his inheritance with a younger brother. And we might, you're probably familiar with this parable. It's the parable of the prodigal son. Super briefly, there's two sons. The younger son wants to get his inheritance early. He gets it, he goes, he wastes his money in sinful living. And while he's um, at his rock bottom, he decides he's gonna go back to his father and just beg to be treated like a servant in his house. So he comes back, the father sees him and ways away, runs to him, embraces him, puts a, a ring signifying that he is fully a part of the family on his finger and brings him in and throws a party for him and says, you are my son again. But the older brother is outside. And so the father goes out to the older brother and says, hey, come into the party, this is great. And the older brother is furious. He's furious. He says, I've never left you and you didn't throw a party for me. But it's possible there's another reason why he's, he's so angry. You see, in order for the younger brother to be fully brought back into the family, he needs to have an inheritance again. But he's already wasted his. Where is this inheritance going to come from? Room has to be made for in the older brother's inheritance. So the older brother, in order to let the younger brother back into the home, has to make space for him, and he doesn't want to. Jesus, on the other hand, delights in sharing his inheritance with us. Tim Keller points out that there's a sense in which Jesus is the better older brother in this story. He shared his inheritance with us at great cost to himself, not in the sense that there is a limit of the amount of glory out there, as if Jesus sharing his glory with us somehow diminishes his glory. That's not, there's plenty of glory. More of the cost it cost him to bring us into his family. He had to become a human, suffer and die and experience hell in order to share this um, this inheritance with us. And he did it, we see in the book of Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him. He did it joyfully. Now, there is an important thing we need to know. An inheritance belongs to the children of the one who gives it. Those who are not children don't benefit from it. If you do not know where you stand in relationship to God's family, if you don't know if you have been brought into this family or if you're certain you have not, 
I would love to connect with you and talk with you about what it means to be an adopted child of God, about what it means to have your sins forgiven and brought into God's family and share in this uh, inheritance. John would love to talk to you as well. The way is open, you can come in. But for those of you who know that you are a member of God's family, let us rejoice in our inheritance and let us praise the one who shared it with us. Let us not fall into the trap of either an over or an under-realized eschatology. Instead, let us enjoy the blessings of our salvation available today and wait in patience and hope for the blessings that are gonna come at the end. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you, thank you that you gave us inheritance. Jesus, thank you for sharing your inheritance with us and winning this inheritance for us. Holy Spirit, thank you for being the sign and the guarantee of our inheritance. Help us to enjoy the blessings of that inheritance that are available for us today and let us, let us have patience and hope to, until we take full possession of it. In your name we pray, amen.